This evening's scripture reading will be read from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and unworldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself a particular people zealous of good works. Good evening and welcome again to our worship service. We're glad that you're here tonight. We have a lot of, a lot of our members away. It is spring break and this morning we took a big hit attendance wise. We were down probably 60 people or so from last week and we are down again significantly tonight. So it would be an understatement to say that our numbers are off, but we're glad that you're here and we're thankful for the opportunity to be together, to worship God in spirit and in truth. I do appreciate the day that we've had together. We had a reorganization dinner this morning following our morning worship service, and that reorganization meeting had to do with our visitation program. And we're very grateful to launch out in this new program and to all who are participating we give thanks and we want to encourage every member to be involved in the work of the church here we're grateful for those that have worked so hard to put this program together we also had singing at the Olive Grove Terrace at 2 o'clock today and we had a good number 19 which was really good considering a lot of our young folks are away and they usually make up the bulk of those who are present but we're glad that we had a good number and we appreciate those that were present to lead our singing and to support that work. And uh, the residents there, they always appreciate our presence. It's encouraging to them. And for many of them, they look forward. This is really a highlight in the month for them. And so we're glad that we're able to, to go and to sing and to be with them for a short period of time. I appreciate Isaiah reading our passage of scripture tonight, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Tonight I want you to consider with me the dimensions of God's grace. There is a lot said in scripture about the grace of God. When you look at Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, there are five things that the Apostle Paul says about the grace of God. And so as we look at this passage of scripture, I want us to note the relevance of grace to those of us who are living in the 21st century. Grace is a very important part of Christianity. And over and over again, the Bible talks about God's marvelous, matchless grace. And so as we look at verse 11, and as we think about some of the dimensions, the multi-facets of God's grace, I want to begin by talking about the liberation of God's grace. Because Ultimately, God's grace brings liberation to the human family or salvation. Listen, if you would, to what Paul said in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. First, there is the appearance of grace, and then there is the abundance of grace. 
Did you know that grace is at the heart of God's redemptive plan? Were it not for God's grace, we would be lost. The Bible talks about God's grace and the manifestation of that grace to us. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace typically defined as the unmerited favor of God. God doing for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. Now, behind the grace of God would ultimately be the love of God and His great mercy. And Paul addresses that in Ephesians 2 at verse 4 when he said, But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ, by grace are you saved. And so the appearance of God's grace, to know that God has reached out to those of us who are members of the human family, we are the crown of God's creation. And when man fell in the Garden of Eden, man being Adam and Eve, his wife, what did God do? Well, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that God set forth the promised seed. That promised seed was planned before the foundation of the world. In other words, God had a plan in mind, ready, before He ever laid the foundation of the world. This morning in our study, we alluded to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, where John talked about the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God sent his son to redeem his creation. And so God reached out to us. He reached out to save us. But I want you to think also about the abundance of God's grace. When I think about the abundance of God's grace, one of the things that stands out in my mind is the fact that there is no one, absolutely no one, beyond the scope of redemption. The vilest of sinners, God will save. Think about the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote to Titus. And Paul viewed himself as the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1. At verse 15 he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He preceded that statement by saying that the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Note if you would what he said about God's grace, that it is exceedingly abundant. In Romans chapter 5 verse 20, Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. What I take from that, there is no one beyond the scope of redemption. There's no way you can outsin God's grace. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, spoke of himself as a blasphemer, a haughty or insolent man. Paul did many things, as he would say, contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Many of the Christians in the first century were put to death. And he said he gave his voice against them. And yet Paul found redemption through Jesus. And because of the great love, mercy, and grace of Almighty God. And then I think about the Corinthian people. 
Corinth was a moral cesspool of evil. And yet when Paul went to the city of Corinth, he spent 18 months there preaching and teaching the word of God. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, that many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And we've looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 on a number of occasions. And when you think about the abundance of God's grace and the fact that God's grace reaches out to the vilest of all sinners, look at the kind of people Paul said God saved. He talked about those who were fornicators, those who were idolaters. Some, he said, were adulterers. Others were homosexuals. Some were thieves. Others drunkards. Some, he said, were revilers. But what happened? Well, he said, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Paul there simply saying that God had the ability to save those people from sin. Now, sometimes people have the idea there's just no way God would ever save me. One of the greatest lies that I believe the devil has really thrown out for the human family to consider is the fact that there's just no way God would save somebody living a life that's steeped in sin. How many people do you think have the idea there's just no way that God would ever save me? Well, that's what the devil wants you to believe. The devil wants you to think that you are beyond the hope of redemption, that there's just no way that God in his infinite love and mercy would ever reach out and save you from sin. Listen, if you were perfect, you wouldn't need the Lord. You wouldn't need the grace of God. But the fact of the matter is, we are imperfect people. And because we are imperfect people, God has come to our rescue. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. First, the Bible says that grace brings liberation. The second component is education. Note, if you would, verse 12. Well, in verse 11, he said, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. God's grace schools us. It saves us, yes, but it also schools us. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, and you can look at the New Testament as well, wherever God's grace goes, it is always followed by teaching. Let me give you an example. Go back and look at Genesis chapter 6. In verse 9, the Bible tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man. Noah had a relationship with Almighty God. God had decreed that he was going to destroy the world by means of a flood. And so in verse 14, God reached out to Noah. And he said, Noah, I want you to build yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now in verse 22, the Bible says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So here you have God's grace being manifested and then instructions given on how to appropriate that grace. God was going to destroy the world by means of a universal flood. And yet Noah and his family were spared. Why? Because of God's grace? Well, what did they have to do to appropriate that grace? 
Well, Noah had to build an ark. He had to comply with the instructions given by an eternal God, and he did that. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible speaks of Noah as one of the great men of faith. Well, how does that apply to us? In the New Testament, is it not a fact that we enjoy forgiveness on the basis of God's grace? Well, the answer is yes. Well, since God's grace has appeared, since we know that God has reached out to the human family through grace, is it not the case that he has given us instructions on how to appropriate that grace? Well, again, the answer would be yes. Listen again to what Paul said in Ephesians 2. He said, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There is a system of faith that has been given unto us. It's called Scripture. Paul identifies it in Galatians chapter 6 at verse 2 as the law of Christ. In James 1.25, it's called the perfect law of liberty. The perfect law of liberty or the law of Christ tells us about the importance of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 29, this is the work of God, that you should believe on him or believe in him whom God has sent. You see, we are required to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, through belief in Jesus Christ, am I earning my salvation? Absolutely not. There is a difference between works of merit and works of righteousness or works of obedience. There is God's part, the divine side of salvation, and there is the human part, the human side of salvation. And so we put our faith and trust in Jesus. As a matter of fact, the New Testament gives us the narratives of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can read the scriptures as they pertain to the life of Jesus. The Bible talks about his life, ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ultimate second coming. So what are we left to do? We take what scripture has said, we draw our conclusions, and we come to a saving faith, don't we? So the grace of God brings education. In other words, it schools us. It tells us what to do to appropriate that grace. So the Bible tells us about the importance of belief. And then the Bible also tells us about the importance of baptism. Now why would I talk about baptism? Because baptism is that act that takes a person from without to within the body of Christ. Preceding our baptism is, of course, faith or belief, repentance, and confession. Why then do we need to be baptized into Jesus Christ? Because that's where the blood is. Jesus shed his blood on Calvary, John 19, 34. So in order for me to appropriate the blood of Christ, I have to go where it was shed. 
So when I'm baptized into Jesus Christ, am I earning my salvation? Absolutely not. Am I complying with the will of Almighty God? Yes, I am. In so doing, what happens? Well, I'm taken as a member of the human family out of the world and placed in the divine body of Christ where I contact the blood of Jesus. God's grace teaches me about belief in Christ. It teaches me about baptism into Christ. It also instructs me on the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, all of these components essential to my salvation, to my well-being. So God's grace teaches us. Can you imagine God reaching out to the human family and not telling men and women what to do to be saved? Think about the day of Pentecost when multitudes of people were in the city of Jerusalem. Peter preached the first gospel sermon. Those who were pricked in their hearts cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Those who responded to that message on that day were what? They were saved. The Bible says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So God's grace brings liberation, education, and then regulation. Look again at verse 12. The Bible says that God's grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. When when somebody obeys the gospel, can they just live any way they please? Absolutely not. Why? Because there are things that we are to avoid on the basis of the grace of God, and there are some things that we are to adhere to because of the grace of God. In Romans chapter 6, Paul asked the question, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Listen to what his response was. God forbid. Some translations say, Certainly not. And the reason is because he he said, how shall we that have died to sin live any longer therein? The idea is, look, you died to the love and the practice of sin. You've given up that way of life. So you you are to avoid a life of sin and unrighteousness. Now, as a child of God, am I going to stumble and fall sometimes? Am I going to make mistakes? Absolutely. Why is that? Because I'm a human being. Are you perfect? Well, the answer would be no. Nobody is. But we have the assurance in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of his son Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So as I make an effort to live in harmony with the will of God, what happens? The blood of Christ continually washes away all of my sins. Now Paul said that God's grace teaches us that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. There are really two systems at work. There is God's system and the world's system. When we become children of God, when we become a part of the family of God, what we're saying is we're going to live according to God's system. We're going to take an eternal view to life. We're going to look at life through an eternal lens. We're not going to live for the world anymore. We're not going to be caught up in what is called worldly lust, ungodly living. We're not going to live for a system that is anti-God to the core. 
We talk about the spiritual battle that we fight every day. Paul talked about warring a good warfare in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In chapter 6 of that same book, he would say, fight the good fight of faith. We are involved in spiritual warfare. Now, the devil uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life to gain a foothold in our lives, doesn't he? And yet, the Bible says that because of God's grace, we live lives that are regulated by God. The compass that we use that keeps us on the right track is the Word of God. Again, going back to 1 John chapter 1 where John said we walk in the light. Walking in the light simply means to walk in accordance with the will of God or the, or the Scriptures. When we do that, we maintain fellowship with God. And we enjoy all of the blessings and favors that are in Christ Jesus. There's a battle going on. And the devil would like nothing more than to circumvent our faith. And so you have these two systems of thought, these, these two systems at war with one another. And we have to make a choice. Are we going to live for God and his ways? Or will we live for the devil and his ways? Here's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. Neither give place to the devil. What Paul was saying is, don't allow the devil to get a foothold in your life. He will get a foothold in your life if you open the door. Now let me ask this question. How can we live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age? Look at the world in which we live. We are bombarded on every side by the world system. And so we have to somehow maintain a filter to keep our minds free and clear of that system. Let me suggest that if we're going to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, that we need to spend time in God's Word. We need to be involved in the work of God. And then thirdly, we need to be people that are worshiping God on a regular basis. Look, we need all the help we can get. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In verse, in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter said, whom withstand steadfast in the faith. How am I going to withstand the advances of Satan? By spending time in the word, as Jesus in the long ago said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus there resisting the temptation posed to him by the devil. What did he do? He quoted scripture. I have to be like the psalmist of old who meditates on the, day of the, on the law of the Lord both day and night. And then to be involved in the work of the church, the work of the kingdom. What's the old saying, an idle mind is the devil's workshop? If you're busy, you don't have a lot of time to get in trouble. And then worshiping God, to be in the presence of God on a regular basis. To think, of, to think about things that are high and holy, righteous. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah had the opportunity to see the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. When we come to worship, we, have the we are afforded the privilege of seeing God high and lifted up. 
And we also see ourselves as we really are. There is another thing that I want to share with you about the grace of God. Not only does God's grace liberate, educate, and regulate, but God's grace brings expectation. Note, if you would, what is said in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two things here. Number one, the reality of his coming. Jesus will one day come, won't he? Now, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came to earth to seek and to save the lost. The Hebrew writer said he will appear a second time in Hebrews chapter 9. That has to do with his second coming, his advent. When will Jesus come? Well, the Lord said, Of that day and hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We don't know when Jesus is coming, but we do know that he's coming. The Bible says that when Jesus comes, he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Can you imagine hearing the voice of the archangel? What about the trumpet of God? And then John said in Revelation chapter 1 that when Jesus comes, every eye shall see him. Note if you would again in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To think that one day we'll see Jesus when he comes. We read about it, we think about it, we talk about it, but one day it will be a reality. One day the Son of God will indeed come. So in light of his coming, what does it say about how I live here on planet Earth? says to me that we ought to live in a state of readiness. God's grace should inspire us to live expectant lives. In other words, we ought to live in a state of watchfulness. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter talked about the day of the Lord. He said that Jesus will come as a thief in the night. The heavens, he said, will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works therein shall be burned up. In verse 11, he said, Seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conduct and godliness? And all he's saying is this. Since Jesus is coming, since we know he's coming, we ought to be living the very best that we can here on planet Earth. We ought to live in a state of readiness, watchfulness. We ought to be living a holy, godly life so that one day we'll be with him forevermore. Now, there's a fifth thing that I want to share with you, and that's found in verse 14. And this has to do with dedication. You see, God's grace brings expectation and also dedication. Listen to what he said in verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. 
First, what about our relationship to the Lord? Now, this really goes back to the grace of God. Because of God's grace, Jesus came. And in his coming, what did he do? He gave himself for us. You remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2? At verse 20 when he talked about Christ, he said, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is personal. Paul made it personal. If it's not personal in your life, something's amiss. When we talk about the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, we need to take, we need to take those things and make them personal. Why? Because we have a relationship with the Lord. Look at what he said. Christ gave himself for us. When he gave himself for us, what did he do? He redeemed us from every lawless deed. And the Bible says he purified for himself his own special people. To be redeemed means to be bought back. And, and really, as New Testament Christians... The Lord Jesus Christ has bought and paid for us. There has been a change of ownership. When you became a child of God, there was a change of ownership. And the idea is that of a slave and a master. When you're in the world, the devil is your master and you're his slave. When you're in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is your master and you are his servant or slave. That's really the picture there. Now, Peter said that we've not been redeemed by corruptible things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, just think about that for a minute. Jesus has redeemed you. He owns you. You talk about a relationship that you enjoy with the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, at verse 19, Paul said, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have from God? He said, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, since you've been bought with a price, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, God, God owns you. That's the relationship that, that you have with him. Now, not only have you been redeemed, but you have been purified. When we obey the gospel, our lives are purified, aren't they? Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto un unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, our lives are made pure. On what basis? The blood of Jesus. We sing the song, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. John said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins. Now, with regard to this relationship that we enjoy with the Lord, Peter said, You are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. And so there is a very special relationship that we enjoy with the Lord. Now, in light of that relationship, note our role in the Lord.
He said that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Now look, zealous for good works. What's my role as a child of God? I am to be zealous for good works. Back in verse 7 of chapter 2, Paul said that we are to show ourselves a pattern of good works. In other words, my life is to be a pattern or an example of good works. Now, I said a minute ago, there are works of righteousness, there are works of obedience, and there are works of merit. Sometimes people have a difficult time understanding the grace of God and works. Paul's not excluding every work. Faith, works, and grace go together. Look at Ephesians 2 again. Paul said, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In verse 10 he said that we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He just ruled out meritorious works in verses 8 and 9. But he said we've been created in Christ Jesus unto good works in verse 10. And so the idea is that as people that have been saved by the blood of Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we have a role in the kingdom of God. What is that role? To be a servant? To be involved in sharing the gospel with others? Helping those that would be classified as helpless in need? Of building up one another? I said just a minute ago that Paul said that God's grace brings dedication. Listen again to what he said. We are to be zealous for good works. Drop down and look at chapter 3, verse 1. He said, be ready for every good work. Look at verse 8. He said, be careful to maintain good works. Look at verse 14. And let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. You remember what Jesus said in John 15 verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. When you understand your relationship to the Lord, it's not a matter of do I have to be involved in the work of the kingdom? Do I have to do this or do I have to do that? The reaction is this. I want to be involved. I want to serve. I want to do what I can. Why? Because the Lord loved me. He bought me. He saved me. I belong to him. And I have a role. I want to encourage all of us tonight. When we think about the grace of God, to be grateful for the many facets of God's grace. There are many dimensions to the grace of God. But as we close, we think about being dedicated. We dedicate our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're dedicated because what he's done for us. It is indeed, it's a labor of love. Everything that we do for the cause of Christ, it's because we love him. When we develop a real relationship with the Lord, we will find our role in the kingdom. We'll find something to do and we'll get busy. We'll do everything that we can to exalt the name of Christ in this community.
In Acts chapter 17, it was said of the early church that they turned the world upside down. We are nearly 21, well, 20 centuries removed from that day. But I really believe we can still turn the world upside down. We can do what they did in the first century. But we have to have what they had. And that was a love for the Lord, an appreciation for the grace of God and a desire to do everything within their power to exalt his name. It may be that you're here tonight. Maybe you're not a Christian. Could I encourage you to come to Christ, believing that he is the Son of God? Do what they did on Pentecost Day. Repent, be baptized into Christ. And the assurance is your sins will be washed away. You'll be added to the Lord's church, Acts 2.47. If you're here tonight, maybe you're not faithful to his cause. Maybe your life's not what it ought to be. And you want, you want us to pray for you and pray with you. We'd be happy to do that. Look, the beauty of being a Christian is we belong to a family. We are family. And family members pull together, help one another, pray for one another. So we'd be happy to do that with you tonight. Whatever your need, would you come as we stand and sing?